All right, guys. Good to see everybody. God bless all of you. Let's uh, let's a- let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Okay, let's pray together. I'll turn this off. All right, Father. Thank you so much, Lord, for the wonderful praises that uh, we are able to uh, just to ring out, Lord, from our hearts. Lord, having a heart that's transformed by your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We're so mindful of His saving work in our life. Lord, we we confess to you that. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And apart from Christ, Lord, there was only a state of misery and helplessness, hopelessness. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our darkness, Lord, your Son uh, shined forth his light upon our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the presence of Jesus Christ. And, um, Father, we're so thankful today to be in that number, Lord, and we're so grateful today, Lord, that Despite our demerit, Lord, um, you were uh, gracious enough uh, to call us to yourself, Lord, by your own wisdom and grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy upon our lives today. Pray that we glorify and honor you in everything that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter twenty, or chapter 12, rather. Not 21, we're not there yet. And, uh, there we go, and today we're going to be looking at, uh, again, talking about the covenant with Abraham, okay, Um, and the covenant with Abraham, we're just going to look at different features of that covenant today, okay, and I want to sort of just jump into a definition of that covenant, but the first thing that I want to do, just as we think about Genesis chapter 12 being spoken about in Galatians chapter 3, uh, what is said there is that this portion of Scripture, uh, really, I mean, zeroing in on verse 3, uh, as, as Paul does, but this portion of Scripture, according to the Apostle Paul, is the gospel. Uh, so really remarkable to think about. That's the way that he saw it. So let me just read it for us real quick, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse and, and excuse me, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I, I want to I just begin by uh, pointing out that the Abrahamic covenant uniquely uh, demonstrates the character of what we've been studying, which is covenant theology. Um, you remember what covenant theology really consists of, right? Uh, covenant theology is stressing the existence of various covenants. Uh, it begins with the covenant of redemption, right? Uh, and what is the covenant of redemption about? Since all of you have heard this ad agnosium at this point, right? What's the covenant of redemption? K-Dub, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So essentially it's... Uh, it's a Trinitarian covenant, right? So it's uh, when 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 was that covenant established? For the foundations of the earth. So, like you know, theologians have identified, you know, different texts of Scripture. John chapter seventeen, where you know Jesus speaks of the Father having commissioned to the Son a certain work to accomplish. Uh, Luke chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-eight and following. You know, Jesus talks about the fact that the Father had covenanted to him a kingdom. Okay, and that he was likewise in the new covenant, covenanting to his his disciples a kingdom. And so we kind of start asking the questions: Well, when did God covenant to Christ a kingdom? You know, it must be then some sort of eternal, uh, you know, aspect is present there. So, and then after the covenant of redemption, then uh, you know we 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 talk about what is known the covenant of what uh, covenant of works, uh, and what is that, Chris? Since I heard you answer. I thought I did. No, that wasn't you? Okay. Who said it then? Michael? Oh, man. I'm trying to get guys in, don't you? Hmm. Therefore. Yeah, therefore. So eating the tree of life for what purpose? For eternal life, that's right. And so, I mean, if anything, the fall shows us that 
uh, Adam, in fact, did not have eternal life, correct? And if he had eternal life, he wouldn't have fell, number one. Number two, he wouldn't have lost eternal life because then it wouldn't be an eternal. So, you know, it's kind of like Arminianism. You know what I mean? You can lose your salvation. Well, salvation, according to the Bible, is eternal life. But if you can, if you can lose it, so much for it being eternal. <laughs> so you can't lose eternal life uh, once you have it. But, yeah, the covenant of works is that arrangement that God made between uh, himself and Adam, who was the federal representative of mankind, and um, and what was demanded of him in the covenant of works was something like this. It was perfect, personal, exact, and total obedience, right? A perfect, personal, exact, and total obedience to God. That's what was demanded of Adam, and uh, he couldn't fail at all, right? And so because he did, uh, how much righteousness did Jesus fulfill? All righteousness, right? So as the second Adam, we kind of learned something about the first Adam. What was demanded of the first Adam was which was what, what was demanded of the second Adam. And the second Adam was demanded that he obey perfectly, exactly, personally, and totally. And so Adam failed in his covenant, and that gave us the basis for yet another covenant, which is the covenant of grace, right? And what is that covenant about? Uh, hotly debated covenant. By the way... Um, Certain uh, theological camps don't believe in these three covenants. Uh, dispensational uh, blah, 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 blah. dispensational uh, theologians, also many in the New Covenant theology, uh, as far as I understand, uh, do not adhere to these three covenants. Piper, uh, Carson, Fred Zaspel, guys like that. Douglas Moo, I think. Many of those guys would not subscribe to some of these uh, covenants. Uh, as far as I understand, Piper does not adhere to a covenant of works. I think his argument is that man could never earn salvation, right? So, but that's dangerous ground because then what you're saying of the first Adam somehow applies to the second Adam. You know what I mean? So people have taken shots at Piper, you know, and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I don't want to get it. I'm just making you aware that there is a lot of folks that don't subscribe to this theology, mainly dispensational and new covenant theologians. They don't subscribe to these uh, primary, you know, these preliminary covenants. Uh, the reason why is because what they would say is that these are extra-biblical covenants. That they're not called covenants in the Bible. You know, but we kind of looked at that last time. Remember how, especially like you look at the covenant of works, I mean, <laughs> you know, it has a covenant structure so clear. You know, there are parties, there are stipulations, there's malediction, there's reward. These, these features are all found later in covenantal arrangements that are explicit. Okay? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the first time you find the word covenant is where in the Bible? Anybody know? A lot of trick questions today. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, with Noah, right? I think it's like chapter 8 or something, right? And, and, and you know, God doesn't, doesn't, uh, you know, God doesn't uh, tell Noah, oh, by the way, this is what a covenant is, <laughs> right? It's almost like Noah knew what a covenant was. How did he know what a covenant was? Remember, and I, I gave some options there that really, uh, you know, folks are kind of stuck with a couple dilemmas, you know. Uh, where, where, did, where did Noah understand the concept of a covenant? Or where did the covenant originate? Did it originate from paganism? And God sort of used the pagan concept and used it in his plan of redemption? I don't think so. I think God is the one that introduced the concept of covenant to his people in the primal history of the church. And that from that was derived, you know, uh, society's understanding of covenant. You know, it all comes from God. You know, so, um, yeah, so covenant of grace, we didn't talk about that, but what is the covenant of grace? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, sir? Since Adam fell and broke the covenant of works, mm -hmm. the only covenant of redemption that's possible that God makes with himself is a covenant of grace. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what are some foundational texts for the covenant of grace, uh, Jonathan, do you think? What is it? Right, so Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you know, a lot of people would say that, um, you know, there again, you don't have a covenant. But what you do have is a promise, you know what I mean? Which, ironically, before we get to the Abrahamic covenant, you know, how does the Abrahamic covenant begin? Well, it begins with a promise, 
You know what I mean? It begins with God making a promise. He doesn't say, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you. That does not come into, into play until Genesis chapter 15, when the covenant is formally ratified uh, with, with Abraham. So, um, you know, so yeah, so Genesis 3.15, I mean, so essential, right? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of amazing to think about that God hardwired the entire plan of redemption into that one primitive promise. And what was that promise consisting of? What is the promise of Genesis 3.15? What does it consist of? That's right, defeating the serpent. There's some other aspects to it too, right? Um, yeah, it's almost like, here, turn there real quick. I don't, not to deviate too much, guys, but we have not been in covenant theology for some months, and so I want to, I want to do as much review as I can. But in Genesis 3.15, this is what's really interesting about it, is that there's a presence of several seeds that are mentioned here. You see this? It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, who's he talking to? The serpent and the woman, right? Specifically what? Between your seed. Who's he talking to when he says your seed? He's talking to the serpent. So who's the so he didn't say, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. That's true. That's part one. But what's the second part of that? Between your seed. So it's almost like stop. Who is the serpent's seed? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can say all kinds of different things, right, to fill that in. What's a, what's a you know, think about the next couple chapters in Genesis. What's a tangible example of the seed of the serpent? Cain. First John chapter 3 tells us Cain was of the evil one, right? He was a son, not of God, but of the devil, right? And so Jesus even identified the Pharisees as children of the devil. So it seems as if the seed of the serpent is anyone that stands in opposition to the seed of the woman, um, you know? So, so think about that. So right there, we're introduced to really like seed plural, right? It's not seed singular, but seed plural. It's all the seed of the serpent, right? And so, and and then it says, between your seed, the serpent's seed, watch this, and her seed. So what I'm claiming is that the serpent's seed, the people that are, that reject the gospel, the unbelievers who reject the gospel, are persecuting the woman's plural seed, which to me is the community of the righteous, which is really ultimately going to be represented by Abel and Seth and people like that, right? And that's what you see in, in Genesis. You see like two communities, right? You see the righteous and the wicked, the righteous and the wicked. You see the city of God and the city of man. You see those who build a city and those who dwell in tents by faith as they pilgrimage, you know, to wherever God will lead them, right? You see those features. And then it takes upon... Um, sort of a singular conflict. That's almost like a corporate conflict. And then it moves on to a singular conflict when it says, he, i.e. the serpent, uh, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's really interesting, right? It says, he shall bruise you on the head. That's the woman's singular seed. And you shall bruise him. Notice it goes him, not them. So that? So he, the serpent will bruise not the, the community, but he will bruise singular seed of the woman, right, uh, on the heel. So, so it's like a, there's a corporate conflict and an individual conflict. There's a conflict between the Christian church and the world, and there's a conflict between the serpent himself and the Messiah, the promised seed. Incredible, right? That's what I mean by, you know, this champion seed of the woman is really the whole gospel is right there, right? It's like it's like the seed of the woman, in a sense, overcomes the conflict with the serpent. That's part of his role being the second Adam, right? So Adam one was in conflict with the serpent in the covenant of works. Likewise, Adam two will be in conflict with the serpent, as stipulated in the covenant of redemption. That was part of his work, was to crush. Uh, the devil, right, on our behalf. And he does this vicariously for us. He does this as our representative, as our federal head, right? And that's why Paul says in Romans, I think it's what, chapter 15, verse 20, where he says, you know, that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know, so a symbolic of, you know, the believer's vindication and the believer's hope is wrapped up in this initial gospel promise that Jesus did this, huh? I think it's Romans 15, 20, I think. 
Um, so let me see here. So, okay, let's go back to Genesis 12. Because we're supposed to be in Abrahamic covenant. But <laughs> I'm just kind of bubbling over a little bit with just some of these ideas. Oh, yeah. Mm. Any questions so far? I feel like I'm going real fast. I'm going fast because I want to get to some other stuff. But any questions about any of that, please feel free to ask. If there's any confusion here, man, these are really, you know, enormous theological systems. Anyone? Yes, sir. Would, would you say in the covenant of grace, it actually is a fulfillment of the covenant work? Being of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's based on this, the 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 servant of the covenant, Christ, right, fulfilling the works. And so it's like they say, you know, it's grace for us, but it's work for him. You know what I mean? It's uh, something we couldn't merit it, but he had to merit it. So, yeah, yeah, that grace is, uh, <laughs> that grace is earned, you know, which, which really adds an amazing dynamic, right? Heaven has to be earned, right? <laughs> you know, we're taught because, you know, we, we battle with Roman Romish theology, right? Rome, Catholicism, right? No, it's not by works. It's not by works. It's not by works, right? We know that. But at the covenantal level, from the very outset, heaven had to be earned. Adam had to earn it. He had to obey perfectly, and then he would have had the authority to partake of the tree of life and enter into an advanced state of eschatology in heaven. After all, let's be honest, God did not create Adam glorified. He created him innocent, maybe even we could say righteous, but not glorified. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had a question, Greg. Can you think? You want to think of one? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Cam- yeah, camera. Yeah. 1620. There you go. There you go. Very nice. Can you expand more on the first part of 15 where God says, I will put enmity? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, as a result of the fall, you know, uh, uh, that hostility that God introduces there uh, in the gospel promise, uh, I think what that does is it ends the pact that Satan had with the woman and, and with Adam. You know, he puts hostility in there, so he, he, he intervenes into the situ- present situation that they found themselves in. Because let's not forget, what happened in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is that the serpent entered in, not just to tempt a woman with an apple. It was way more devious than that. It was more diabolical than that. It was to literally undo everything God was trying to do in chapter 2 with the covenant of works. It was to get mankind to enter into an agreement with him. You see? And so the hostility ends that agreement. That's my position. You know what I mean? Not mine. I didn't originate. I'm, I'm not a primary thinker, so none of these ideas are original to me, okay? <laughs> if you push me on it, I'll tell you where I got it, okay? <laughs> yes, sir? Uh, the word enmity, is that just separation? Enmity is like hostility. Yeah, yeah. So that communion that they had with the serpent is God is going to deal with that friendship, that pact that covenant, right? Because that's, that's why we, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we identified the serpent, not just as some snake, you know. You know, you know, you know because of Eden, you know, we got all these coloring books and, you know, children's Bibles and stuff, you know what I mean? And they, the way they cartoon, they, the, you know, the, the cartoonish attributes they give to the serpent, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but, you know, it's way more diabolical than that. And as a matter of fact, you know, that's why we called him the anti-lord, because he tried to present himself as a different Lord of a different covenant arrangement to the people. Instead of do this and live, you know, the serpent said, you know, do what you want. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yes, sir, Michael. Relative to those three covenants we have right yeah. here, so where does, like, the Abrahamic covenant, Very good question, very complicated question. So the Abrahamic covenant, what we're looking at, uh, we're, if we're asking the question, you know, in terms of the covenant of grace, because what does, what does classic Reformed theology say? What they say is that the covenant of grace, okay, is administered, if you would, down the corridors of time, and that all the other covenants, you know, let's say Noah, uh, even though it's a non-redemptive covenant, right? Why do we say non-redemptive 
because it's a common grace covenant. It's for the whole world, right? Okay, so, and then you have, you know, Abraham, right? And what's the next one? Moses, David, New, co- <laughs> new Covenant, right? And so what they would say is that the covenant of grace is administered through all these covenants. So what are all these covenants in the Bible? They're just different administrations of the one covenant of grace. And so that is kind of your classic Reformed theology representation of covenant theology where I take issue with it and where Baptists take issue because, you know, we can't be baptizing babies, so we've got to come up with something different, right? <laughs> I'm just sorry. It's, it's, it's that the Bible teaches something different than this simple monolithic presentation of covenant theology. What we would say is that, no, 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 no. Actually, when you come to Abraham, something happens to the Abrahamic covenant, and I've talked about this before, where it is, in a sense, a dichotomy of works and grace. I feel like my writing is especially, exceptionally bad today. Works and grace. So what, they, what we would say is that the Abrahamic covenant presents a dichotomy within the covenant. And do we have a, a basis for this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have uh, many, many uh, passages that teach this. For example, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 and following. You have there the Apostle Paul talking about how that, matter of fact, in Abraham, two covenants, in fact, are represented. Right? And then you get into this whole dichotomy um, where two principles and two posterities will emerge. One follows the principle of works. The other one follows the principle of grace. The principle of works is represented by, uh, uh, the uh, what do you call it, uh, Abraham's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Hagar, his, you know, his other woman that he took to produce to try to force Ishmael to be born to be the heir of his, you know, uh, of his life and of, of the covenant, that the promises that God made. So, you know, under the works system, you have Hagar, Ishmael, which represents ultimately what? According to Paul, Galatians 4, 20, uh, 1 and following, that represents Sinai. Isn't that amazing how he goes to that. Like, you know, it goes from, you know, what happened historically with Abraham, with Hagar, with Ishmael, and he says this actually speaks of Mount Sinai. See what I'm saying? Yes, sir. That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple different angles of this, you know, like on, in, the, in the one sense you have Paul in Romans. His focus is, you know, uh, you know, the focus there is more or less forensic, right? Like he's trying to establish how is a person made right with God? How are you legally made right with God? And he eliminates the basis of works being the basis of our righteousness with God, right? And and uh, he, he emphasizes the promise, right? How it's by faith because it's by a promise. And that's what Galatians is really doing. But Galatians gives us a little bit of more of a covenantal flavor, you know what I mean? Because he brings in these kind of dichotomies. And then grace is represented by Sarah, Isaac, and Sinai, or the New Jerusalem, as Paul talks about, the Jerusalem above, which is free. You know, you know what I'm saying? So Hagar represents the bondage of the law, and Sarah represents the freedom of the gospel. Uh, really remarkable. Um, but that's jumping way too far ahead. I just wanted to, um, uh, but you guys can ask a question about any, any of this stuff. Um, anything jump out at you guys? Any other questions regarding this? So I would say, you know, and, and if you guys remember the little chart that I showed a long time ago, maybe I'll hand that out eventually. I'm confident enough to do it. But uh, I, I showed, like, in my chart that, you know, the Abrahamic covenant was a dichotomous covenant. The Mosaic covenant is actually going to follow the works principle uh, rather than the grace principle, and that's a major debate in covenant theology. This is uh, another place where we diverge between you know, Presbyterian and Baptistic models of covenant theology. Presbyterians would say, no, absolutely not. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant, is just another administration of the covenant of grace. And Baptists are saying, how can you possibly say that? I mean, you know, in Deuteronomy, I think it's in Deuteronomy 34, you know, God specifically says that you have to obey these stipulations in order to inherit, you know, the promises of his commandments. And those promises are, you know, land and security and covenant blessing 
uh, and all of that. So we, we would say, no, 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 no. Uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, although the covenant of grace is operating individually among uh, you know, the people of the covenant, uh, in terms of the character of the covenant itself, the Mosaic Covenant is some sort of reproduction of the covenant of works. Um, maybe that's why God calls Israel as a nation his son. Because they, in a sense, they're like a corporate Adam. Another Adam in the Bible comes forth. And does, does that Adam succeed? The second Adam, the corporate Adam? Did the corporate Adam succeed in their covenant? No, they failed miserably, right? <laughs> right after they say, all these things we will do. <laughs> right? Immediately after that, they become idol worshipers. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Somebody had a... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then the one I was thinking about, um, what did I say, 34? Beginning of verse 1, it says, Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, we're going to be there uh, shortly in our trip to Israel. We'll see Dan, and it's amazing. All Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Negev and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land, watch this, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to you and your descendants. I have let you see it for your eyes, but you shall not go over there, so it's almost like because they broke the covenant, they were not given the inheritance, right? But that inheritance was not salvation. That's very important. That's why we say this is not a covenant of grace, because what's at stake is not salvation. What's at stake is something like this, what theologians call national election, right? Their identity as the theocracy of God, chosen to be God's people, typologically. Uh, temporally, temporarily, right? Uh, Mainly along uh, geophysical lines, meaning geographical and physical lines, ethnic lines, but not uh, spiritual lines. Okay, before I, um, we're going to get back into all this, you guys. We're not going to, this is not like, you know, this is not the last time we'll, we'll visit these concepts, okay? Um, let me just begin talking about the covenant with Abraham and why I say the covenant of Abraham uniquely dem- demonstrates the character of covenant theology. This is really important. Uh, number one, uh, what I would say is that it shows us that progressive revelation, how many of you guys have heard that term before, progressive revelation? What does that mean? Mm. Okay, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, at, you know, progressive revelation uh, also just deals with the fact that, you know, um, that God is, that God, the revelation of God is increasing more and more and more. It begins very primal, very primitive, and then it's sort of like, I mean, think about it, you guys. I mean, you got, what, like a thousand, over a thousand years of history between Adam and, Christ, and, and, and Abraham? <laughs> like 2,000 years have transpired? Wow. I mean, that's just a tiny little slither of your Bible. And thousands of years of church history have gone by already. And then God, in a sense, telescopically zooms into one man. And it's like, stop everything. It's like redemptive history was going down the train tracks at a extreme velocity right and then everything stops <laughs> at the foot of one man <laughs> abraham that's remarkable right and it's just it's just tremendous and so that you know what, what i'm saying is that progressive revelation is covenantally constructed that's important 
because it shows us that as God's revelation is increasing in the Bible, God is working covenantally. Uh, I would go so far as to argue that God doesn't do anything aside from covenants. I don't think so. No, I'm I'm sure of it. (laughs) Uh, Any questions about that? Any comments, feedback about that? Isn't that amazing, though? Just the grandeur of revelation and the concept of a covenant and how how inseparable it is. Yeah. Yeah, and you see that you see that in the in the proclamation of the iniquity came to Eve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What what does this refer to? You know, the gospel, the next thing about why I would say it is uh, uniquely set forth in the Abrahamic covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant uniquely sets forth the character of covenant theology. Here's the next one, is because what it presents to us is that the gospel is actually an intertestamental reality, right? Can you think of any texts that would substantiate that? Right? Because this is important. This is, this is really important. And again, this kind of brings in a little bit of a departure, especially hermeneutically with other systems of thought, that uh, really, I mean, I hate to keep harping on, but it's true. Uh, you know, classic dispensationalism went so far in their understanding of dispensationalism that they almost began to teach two paths of salvation. It was almost like in the Old Testament, you got saved by works, and if you want grace, you got to wait for the New Testament. <laughs> it's like the Reformed theologian said, what are you talking about? The gospel is intertestamental, right? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And matter of fact, he says that in Luke 24, right, 26 and 27, he tells them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet said concerning me, right, and how the Christ was supposed to suffer and then be raised again, right? And then he says, and then beginning with Moses and with the prophets, and the, the it says beginning with Moses and all the on all the prophets or all the law or something like that, you know, verse twenty seven he says, you know, he began to explain all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's incredible. Yeah, of course. So anybody else? Can you read that? Do you have that there? I, I, we're thinking of the same verse. It's Galatians chapter 3, I think it's verse 8. Um, it so captures exactly what we're saying, how the Abrahamic covenant, my argument is that the Abrahamic covenant uniquely reveals to us the character of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. Galatians 3, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. To Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. He pr- so... A couple of things are going on there that are really unique. Number one, notice the personification of the scriptures. It's like if we don't remember that verse right, we'll say God preached the gospel to Abraham. That's not what it says. It says the scriptures, <laughs> right? So it's almost like the personification of the scriptures that through the scriptures, God spoke to Abraham. Well, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Because what is that? That impacts our understanding of bibliology. Oh, the Bible was not written until, you know, the Council of Council of Nicaea, right? <laughs> it's always the Council of Nicaea. The skeptics always want to say, you know, which had nothing to do with the writing of the scriptures, but they seem to be convinced that it is. But you can see all the way back then in, in the patriarchal history of the church, you have the scriptures already active. You know what I'm saying? In whatever form it might have came in, you know? It could have been oral tradition, but it could have been written down, and it seems like it was to some degree. But the scriptures were preaching prophetically to Abraham, the gospel, and keep reading. Verse nine. Uh, well, it says in the end, verse eight, uh, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. Yeah, but that's it. When he says all the nations will be blessed in you, look at that. He takes a little kernel of Genesis twelve, and then the which that's repeated throughout the Abrahamic covenant. But what he's saying 
is, is everybody back there again? Genesis chapter 12, uh, right? Because we're being told by the inspired apostle and the inspired writer of Galatians that Genesis 12, 3, that little phrase right there, that little Hebrew phrase, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that that's the gospel. Now, I would go so far as to say that that is, man, that's like the whole enchilada right there, you know, because because. It's, it's in a sense proleptically, which means it's anticipating or it's prophetically, it's future, right? It's looking future, it's looking into the future uh, of God's eternal kingdom, you guys. And, uh, you know, covenant theology has no greater interpreter than Revelation, the book of Revelation. Because there we understand exactly what's going on here, right? That what, Ad, what Abraham was being promised is an innumerable number uh, inner, you know, uh, what is it? Yeah, yeah, like an innumerable number of offspring, but it's like a, it's like an international, global, you know, reality, right? And so we find that, like in Revelation chapter five, verses nine and ten, he says, you know, that that uh, you know that that he, that the Lamb, was slain in order to redeem for himself, right, a purchase for God, people out of every tribe, tongue, nation, right. So that's fulfilling what God promised to Abraham, and that is the gospel, you know? That, that, that is focusing on the eschatological outcome of the gospel. You know, the gospel is much more than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, it's much more, in other words, than personal individual salvation. The gospel is a gr- huge panoramic scheme that God has, you know? I mean, it's just amazing. And then to think we're part of that, you know, should really, I mean... Should really, you know, should cause us to just stand in awe and stand in wonder of all of that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, in intertestamental gospel, we've argued this uh, a lot. The other way that that we can see that is, is you know, is uh, the gospel is in both testaments, you know, and and I want to challenge you. I was, I was thinking about this coming in here. I, was, I need to challenge you guys. Can you rep- reproduce essential components of the gospel from the Old Testament? That's that's. Uh, Write that down, challenge each other, and do it over dinner or at the picnic today or something like that. And, you know, can you reproduce essential components of the gospel from the Old Testament? Don't look. <laughs> Don't look at the New Testament, right? From the Old Testament, how much of the gospel can you reconstruct? Can you tell me something about the birth of Christ? Can you s- to tell me something about uh, the sinlessness of Christ? Can you tell me something about the death of Christ, about the perfect life of Christ, about the resurrection of Christ, about the burial of Christ? Can you tell me something about the ascension of Christ? Can you tell me something about the gospel from the Old Testament? The answer is yes, of course. Now you just need to do it, Right? And hopefully in your minds, you're just firing off different verses, right, of different passages that are in there. Yeah, it's all in there. And that's because the gospel is intertestamental. What's the next thing? The essence of Scripture is a Christ-centered covenant theology. Ooh, man. Christ-centered, right, covenant theology. You know how many books on covenant theology I have? Too many. Oh, you want to hear something really funny this morning that happened? Well, you know, sometimes a pastor gets plagued by a sense of discouragement and, you know, things like that. And I was having one of those moments last night. I was thinking as I'm writing my manuscript, you know, I've been doing this for over a decade now, and I'm thinking, why am I doing all this? Why am I editing this document? Why do I care? So my footnote, everything has to be perfect. Why am I doing all this? You know, just one of those irrational moments, you know. I'm sure the devil was in there somewhere, right? And I snapped out of it. Don't worry about it. I, I, I finished my, my sermon, okay. This morning, you know, you know how many books I have in my library, right? Those of you that have been there, you know, it's a lot. It's probably thousands. I don't know. I, I, I was in there, and Eden, you know, Eden's a year and a half, exactly. And I was in there, and I was studying. I was preparing today my sermon and all this stuff. And I looked back, and out of my entire library, she pulled out two books. You know what they were? Convert from Adam to Christ and crucify the soul of the gospel. My two books. And she laid them on the ground and she was pointing to my picture going like this. Papa? Papa? I kid you not. I was like, Trish? It's like, you put her up to this, man? And she did. And she's like, what? She's, and then she's interrogating me like I was just playing a hoax on her or something. I was like, no, I didn't do it. She did it on her own. 
Out of all my books, she picked up two books out of the light, and it were both my my books. Anyway, it was like a miracle took place. You know, it's just like wow. I'm like, me and Trish were talking. It's like, so is that a miracle? I mean, is that <laughs> is that a miracle right there? I mean, I don't know. That's kind of crazy. Um, no coincidences, right? <laughs> I don't know what that had to do with anything I'm saying, but uh, what's always oh, encouraged. That's right. Sure. And I'm also encouraged about my next point. <laughs> yeah, so the Abrahamic covenant <laughs> uniquely you know, shows us the Christ-centered structure of covenant theology. So the essence of Scripture is Christ-centered uh, covenant theology. Every aspect of every covenant is Christos- Christocentric, right? And these are terms that we want to get very familiar with, Christocentric, um, something like that. Um, somebody give me an example of that. Pick a covenant and tell me why it's Christ-centered. Anyone? Jonathan? This is something that years ago shocked my little dispensational soul. Whatever, whatever was left of it back then. <laughs> somebody said... As predominant as the nation of Israel is in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is not about Israel. I was like, what are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> the Old Testament is not about Israel, then what's it about? Christ. It's like, wow, talk about revelations going off, you know, in my mind. Like, wow, where have I been the whole time, you know? But, but it's true. Uh, the entire Old Testament and covenant theology for that reason is Christocentric. Every, um, even in my notes that I'm kind of compiling uh, for covenant theology and each covenant that I've been going through, I have a section in there and I talk about how, you know, the Christ-centered, you know, aspect of this covenant or something like that, you know, and I just really flesh out from all of Scripture, you know, why this covenant, like the cover of Abraham, why is it particularly Christ-centered? It's all about him, you know what I mean? He is the seed, right? I mean, it's all about him. You know, let's, just to show that again real quick, turn to Galatians chapter 4. The faster I talk, the faster the time goes. I'm not kidding you. Look what time it is. It's absurd. I mean, it feels like it's just flu today. Galatians, what did I say? Uh, no, I'm wrong. Uh, Galatians 3, <coughs> beginning in verse, oh, man. I guess verse well, we can start in 15 for context. Galatians 3.15 says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So he's just trying to tell us something about the nature of a covenant. right? Once it's been ratified, no one adds, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. It's done. It's a ratified covenant. You cannot now, you know, set it aside or add conditions later to it, right? So and then he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and then he gives us an interpretation of, of uh, uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 15 and other places where he, he, he speaks of this. And he says, uh, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And so verse 16 is really the linchpin of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, there we see everything that God promised Abraham was about Christ and for Christ and through Christ and in Christ. And, <laughs> you know, it's all about him. What am I what I'm saying is this? Well, thank you, Paul, for telling us what you're saying. This makes it a little bit easier, right? The law, that's the Mosaic covenant, which came 400 years 30 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously verified by God. So in other words, the law does not undo the promises. Right? It says, it doesn't nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. What's the inheritance? Huh? Zion, that's one way of saying it. What's the inheritance that he's talking about here? That's important, right? If the inheritance, it seems as if for Paul, the inheritance is the most important part of it all. The importance, you know, the inheritance is the inheritance of, yeah, salvation, salvation in Christ, heaven, the kingdom of God. You know what I mean? All of those things. If it's based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise. Here's the problem. 
God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. That's the problem. And so the law doesn't, it didn't do away with that. And it was all uh, through Christ. Matter of fact, if you jump down to verse 21, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. No, 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 I missed it. Where's it at? I I missed it. Uh, Verse 19, I'm sorry. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through the agency of to the, uh, through angels by the agency of a mediator. Uh, angels, because what they're saying is that at Mount Sinai, when the law was given, angels accompanied the giving of the law. That's kind of in Scripture. It's very heavy in Jewish tradition as well. Uh, it says, by the agency of a mediator. Who was that mediator? Moses. And it says, for what? Until. See, so the, the law was given with an expiration date. The law was given, meaning the old covenant was given with an expiration date until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That's why in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the author of Hebrews says that now, you know, the old covenant is becoming obsolete and ready to disappear because of the new covenant that has come. It's almost like the old covenant ran its course, it fulfilled its purpose, and now it can be set aside. Right, because it fulfilled the purpose for which it was, it was ratified with that purpose. Yes, sir. Uh, and Paul calls him the law schoolmaster. Yeah, that's right. That's what he says here in the next chapter. But notice what he says: until the seed would come, to whom the promise had been made, and who's that seed? Christ. He just said it. He just said Christ. And so the seed, which is really remarkable, you guys. I mean, what is he saying right here? What he's saying is that the promise that was made to Abraham was actually ultimately transcendently made to Christ. That's incredible. I mean, that means that when we're reading Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, all of those scriptures about the Abrahamic covenant, we're actually reading how God is planning to work in Christ. That's just incredible. So where am I at? Yeah, Christ-centered. That's why it's Christ-centered. What's the other point? The other point is that, no, no, that's not it. The purpose of covenant theology is an eschatological Christotelism. Okay, I'm, I'm just having fun right there. Turn, a, uh, turn with me to uh, Hebrews 11. We're almost done here. Hebrews 11. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant uniquely teaches us that the purpose of covenant theology is eschatology. Uh, Christotelism is just a word that it's kind of a good and bad word, honestly, if you get into the academic world. You know, like uh, some scholars use Christotelism in a liberal fashion that is not healthy. I'm using it in the Reformed context. The Reformed theologians use Christotelism to tell us that not only is Scripture Christ-centered, but it's Christotelic. The word telos means something like goal, like the the goal or the purpose of something, right? And what we're saying is that from Scripture, the whole goal of Scripture is Christ, right? But it's eschatologically so. And you know that for a fact. Uh, if not, I'm about to show it to you. In Hebrews 11, we are told in verse 13... Well, first of all, verse I can't go on verse 10. What was Abraham looking for? When God gave him the promise of the land and all of that, and his sojournings, he goes around pilgrim, pil, as a pilgrim all over the ancient world. What's he doing? He was looking for the city which has foundations, something like true foundations, real foundations, eternal foundations, right? It says, whose architect and builder is God. Think about that. Why is that so important? This is so glorious, you guys. To go, if you can see this, what he's saying, in the backdrop of, if you're reading Genesis, you just got done In Genesis chapter 10, remember what we studied last week? We just left the dark, dismal, miserable context of Babel. The Babelite kingdom and the Babelite covenant that was made there to do what? To build a city by human autonomy and human ingenuity, pretended autonomy, but you know what I mean. 
It was all man-centered. Man will do this. Man will achieve it. Man will accomplish it. Man will ascend into the heavens on his own. And so, and so what does God do in the context of that antichrist crisis? He sends in a hope. And the hope is not this is not this, you know, this, this, this fading dream that man has of himself, right? It's not this delusional kind of antichrist spirit that this humanistic spirit that society has that we can do what we want to do. We can be all we can be. No, 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 no. Abraham knew that in the context of the promises God made for him, that he was actually by faith looking for something even greater than anything that is found in the land of Canaan. And uh, and then he says, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. In other words, they did not receive the ultimate fulfillment of these things, but having seen them and welcomed them from a far distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 15 is very important, you guys. For hermeneutics, okay, don't forget this part, because verse 15 is telling us, it is telling us that we cannot make the mistake that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were merely thinking about Canaan. If they were, they could have just went back at any time, right, in all their sojourns, but they did not. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. That's the eschatology. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call their, to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. It's none of the citadels that this world is capable of producing. There is no uh, met- metropolis that man can make that will stand the test of time. And, uh, you know, so it's eschatological. And then the last thing is the result of covenant theology. Watch this now. The result of covenant theology is communion with God. It's so communion with God. It's it. It's so, it's so, this is, and this is where really the beauty of it comes home to us, right? Turn to Revelation chapter 21 and we'll finish there. Didn't I just say we'll finish in Hebrews? Sorry, I don't mean to lie. But, uh, but Revelation chapter 21 reminds us that covenant theology predominantly is about communion with God. What was Abraham called? He was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. So that ultimately, you know, for, for God to appear to Abraham in his tent is to communicate upon himself a friendship. Uh, that, that's what it meant to come into your tent, is that I was welcomed in with you in the most intimate setting. You see what I'm saying? That, that it's like a friend coming home with you and especially in that nomadic context, to have someone enter your tent was big time. Because what you were saying is you identify with that person, you trust that person, and you vouch for that person. And so God, you know, goes in to become his friend. So, so Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Wow. Amazing. And I saw the holy city. That's the city that God built. New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But the emphasis there is just God dwelling among us, right? He came to dwell among us, to have communion and to have friendship with us. So that's, uh, that's some of the things I was thinking about today. So let's go to worship because I've made us miserably late.